Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Second Corinthians 13, and we will be considering the final verse of this epistle, verse 14. Hear the word of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit, you have appointed the proclamation of your word as a means by which your people will grow and sinners will be brought to faith. You have been faithful in this congregation and in many others, even on this day, to show yourself to your people, to teach them, to help them. And so we ask you once more to come to us and give us assistance, as our brother has already prayed that your spirit might come upon the preacher and upon the hearers, and that we might all know his power. We ask you to increase our understanding and deepen our love for you as we contemplate this verse, and we ask that you would encourage us and cause us to go forward in faith and in hope as a result of the things that you say. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ. We pray that your blessing would be upon us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation or witnessed a circumstance like this? Your telephone rings, and you take it out, and you look at it. And when you notice the name that's displayed on your phone, you realize that the person who is calling is someone who has been irritating or offensive in previous conversations, or is someone with whom you're having a dispute. Perhaps it's a family member who disagrees with you about an important matter such as finances, or maybe it's a neighbor who has initiated a property dispute or refuses to remove all the junk in his yard or allows his dogs to terrify the neighborhood. Possibly it's a contractor who did shoddy work on your property. There could be many scenarios, but you must answer the call. And how do you feel when you see that name on the phone in front of you? And then, when you connect, how does the conversation usually proceed? Seldom do these discussions go well. Often, they start out heated, and as you talk, the emotional temperature increases. And how do they conclude? Well, often with anger and bitterness and sinful recriminations, hard and harsh words that are spoken back and forth, I ask you, is that familiar? Well, probably, and sadly, for most of us, we can remember when we experienced or witnessed just this kind of thing. And it's not a pleasant memory, is it, to think back on those times? You know, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians is in some senses like one of these conversations. We're only able to listen to one side as if we were seated in a room while someone else endures one of these trying discussions. But it's very much like this. Think about it with me for just a moment. In this epistle, Paul must address deep troubles in the Corinthian church. He must defend his own ministry. He must describe the depth of the multiple trials and difficulties he has endured. 
He must call the Corinthian church to repentance. He pleads for reconciliation and much more. He tells us that the Corinthians had criticized him. They had viewed him as secondary and perhaps even as an object of scorn because of his troubles. They had been overzealous in their practice of church discipline. They were proud, miserly, self-centered. They were willing to accept other pseudo-apostles over Paul. And this epistle is full of these problems. You see, it reads very much like one side of an exceedingly difficult conversation. And yet, it closes with the fullest and most extensive word of blessing found in all Paul's letters. Listen to the final words of Murray Harris's commentary on 2 Corinthians. He says this, It is a singular paradox that a letter so full of indignation, remonstrance, and gyrating emotions should conclude with the most elevated Trinitarian affirmation in the New Testament, couched in the form of a benediction addressed to all the members of a factious church. Dr. Harris is exactly right. While our experience of difficult conversations often ends in hard feelings or shame or further conflict, Paul concludes his hard letter to this church with words of blessing, words of hope, words which are, in a sense, a prayer from Paul. They're directed to the Corinthian Christians, they're based in his Trinitarian doctrine, and they are applied to all believers without exception in that congregation. You see, here, what we have at the conclusion of this epistle is genuine Christian love presented in a really beautiful form. In these final words of 2 Corinthians, we have a wonderful benediction. Now, before we proceed we ought to define a couple of terms. And so I ask the rhetorical question, do you know what a benediction is? It's a word that we use, but maybe we don't always understand it. Benediction is simply an anglicized version of a Latin word. Translated directly into English, it means a word of blessing. Now, a benediction is not the same as a doxology, though it's very easy to confuse them, and people often do so. Let me differentiate between them for you. A doxology, now we sing sometimes the doxology, don't we? A doxology is an expression of praise to God. You can look across the page in your Bible to chapter 11 and verse 31, and we see a very brief doxology where Paul, as he's... um, speaking about the Lord's work and and really the deliverance that he experienced at Damascus, he, he says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever. That's a a momentary doxology that Paul inserts into his discussion. A doxology is a word of praise that we speak to God. It originates on earth with us, And the audience of the doxology is the one who sits on the heavenly throne. So it initiates with us, and it is directed towards God, and God receives this. And so if I can put it in this way, in one form, the direction of a doxology is upward. It comes from us. We say it, or perhaps we write it, with the direction being that God hears and receives it. But a benediction is different because a benediction is a word of blessing that is spoken to us. It doesn't originate with us, but it is spoken to us. In fact, a benediction comes from heaven, 
and it's delivered by God's representatives on earth, and it expresses a desire for the Lord's gracious bounty to come upon us. If the direction of a doxology is upward, the direction of a benediction is downward, because it comes from the heavenly throne, and it is spoken to us so that we might hear it. The Lord to his people gives us blessings. Many congregations conclude their worship with a benediction so that the last word that God's people hear before they depart is a word, a reminder of blessing from God to his saints. Keep your finger here and just turn for me with a moment to the very beginning of 2 Corinthians. I want to point out something that uh, is very interesting as Paul begins this epistle. 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Now there, Paul is simply, that's a very typical introduction that Paul gives. He identifies himself, and he identifies those to whom he is writing. But notice verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I were giving you a quiz right now, I would ask you which of the two this is. And you would say, a benediction. It's a, it's a word that comes from the Lord. But notice the next verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. What's that? That's a doxology, isn't it? You have a benediction that leads into a doxology. That's what benedictions ought to do. They're a reminder to us of what the Lord does for us, and in response, we give him praise and worship. That's what Paul does. Now, you probably will be familiar with this fact. Paul frequently employs benedictions. In fact, every one of his epistles both begins and ends with a benediction. In his greetings, he'll often say something like this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We just read that at the beginning of this epistle. In his farewells, he likewise expresses a blessing upon his recipients, both churches who receive his letters, but also even individuals. And Paul, pardon me, does not do this out of custom, he doesn't do it as a mere formality, the way that you and I might greet each other. We say, how are you? And we respond to each other, fine, thanks, even if we feel terrible. It's just the way that it works. Paul's not doing that. Paul genuinely writes in this way because he genuinely desires God's people to know the things that are expressed and to grow in grace in every circumstance. You see, Paul's yearning is for Christians to live with a deep understanding of the spiritual realities which are at the root of their lives. They must know God, not just have some facts about him, but really and truly comprehend his grace and walk through life with an absolute dependence on him, to love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and strength and mind. And it is for this reason that Paul employs benedictions at the entry and the exit of every epistle. Now, with these things in mind, let's look at the words that Paul writes at the conclusion of 2 Corinthians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. These words are very familiar. 
We've heard them and we've read them many times, but they are full of wonderful truths to quicken our lives, to give us courage and strength in the face of the obstacles that we encounter. Now, we need to remember that these words conclude a relatively long epistle, and we must not divorce them from what has been written previously all the way back to the greeting and the benediction and doxology of chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. You see, there's a very real sense in which this final word of benediction looks back and presents us with ideas that are drawn from the earlier portions of the epistle. Think about it like this with me. The first time that these words would have been heard were at the conclusion of this epistle, when the Corinthians would have been gathered together, and someone, probably one of their elders, would have read the entirety of the epistle to them. So their minds would have been taken up with all of the things that Paul has already written, and he concludes his words with this. Perhaps they would think back to things that they've heard earlier on. For example, grace. Grace appears 11 other times in 2 Corinthians, in places such as chapter 1, verse 12, where Paul asserts that his conduct has been dependent on the grace of God. Or in chapter 4, verse 15, in which we read that grace produces thanksgiving in the lives of God's people. Or in chapter 6, when Paul pleads with the Corinthians not to receive the grace of God in vain. And in chapter 8, verse 1, where Paul provides an example of grace at work in the Macedonian churches. You see, he's already introduced to them the concept of grace and given them examples of how grace works in their lives. The second element of the benediction, love, has been presented in words such as we find in 514, the love of Christ compels us. Or in chapter 9, verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver. And when he writes, he speaks here, reminds them about communion or fellowship, he's already asked them questions in this epistle. What communion, what fellowship has light with darkness, reminding believers that they must flee from evil deeds? And he urged them in chapter 8 to enter into the fellowship of ministering to the saints. You see, if the Corinthians have been paying attention as the epistle is read to them, they will hear echoes in this benediction referring back to things that have already said. But we must think in these terms. It's important to notice that this is not a backwards-looking benediction. It actually points the Corinthians, and by implication, it points us forward. The reasons that they need grace and love and fellowship are obvious. But at this moment, Paul does not want them to dwell on the past and on their sins. He doesn't expect them to dwell on the disease, but rather to receive the medicine. He intends for them to seek the remedy and to know its blessed fruits. So the last word that they hear at the end of this difficult epistle is a word of blessing. Now, it's true. They needed to do a great deal of repenting. But even their repentance must be done in the proper context. And these words explain that context. This benediction is full of deep, profound, and in some ways inexplicable things. 
It speaks about the Trinity. It speaks about grace and love and fellowship. It's an overflowing, overwhelming source of comfort and hope. And, I, and my desire is that you will find that this morning as we work our way through these words. Let's, let's look at them now more specifically. The first thing we need to notice as we look at the verse as a whole is that this is a Trinitarian blessing. The apostles of the New Testament, the apostles of Jesus Christ, were clearly Trinitarians. We ought to be troubled when people say that the doctrine of the Trinity is an invention of the third or fourth century and that Paul would not have recognized it. I am as strongly opposed to that idea as I possibly can be. In this statement that we have before us, we have a Jewish man who is raised to believe that there is one God, the, the first when I was young, I don't know if we still do this, but when I was young, we had memory verses, okay? And the first memory verse for most of us was John 3.16, right? That was what we were taught and learned. Well, the first memory verse, if I can use that term, for a little Jewish boy would have been Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, as it's called. You could probably say it with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's, that's the most basic truth of Judaism, and Paul would have been reared in that context. In fact, he was so committed to it that early in his life he was opposed to the Christian faith and did what he could to try to destroy it because he believed in one God. Here's a man who is absolutely committed to the principle of monotheism, that there is one God and who continues in his epistles to assert that there is one God, placing three persons on an equal footing in a divine blessing. In 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, Paul says this, There is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. Now, Paul's not there saying that uh, there, there are other true gods. What he's saying is in the minds of the people of the Mediterranean world, there are gods. That's what he's acknowledging. He goes on in verse 6, Yet for us there is one God the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Probably you remember his words from 1 Timothy. There is one God, and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Our apostle was a committed monotheist, and yet here... He has no reluctance in placing three persons, Christ, the Father, and the Spirit, together in his blessing. This is not a doctrine of three gods. Paul hasn't suddenly lost his mind and left behind his monotheism. But rather, he is describing to us the fact that there is one God who exists eternally in three persons. And the order here is Son, Father, and Spirit. And Son, Father, and Spirit, the one God, work together to bring about salvation for his people. That's what Paul wants us to recognize. Now, brothers and sisters, the doctrine of the Trinity is profound and ultimately beyond our comprehension. I think that probably it's one of the two most difficult, most challenging doctrines of the Christian faith. The other is the incarnation. How does God take humanity to himself? How does he assume our humanity? Our feeble minds, even apart from sin, cannot know God as he knows himself. We may only know him as he reveals himself to us. 
Listen to these words of the great 4th century bishop of Constantinople, Gregory Nazianzus. He expressed this memorably, beautifully in a sermon preached on January the 6th in the year 381. We recited the Nicene Creed before from the 4th century. I was thinking as we were reciting that creed how wonderful it is to think of 17 centuries of Christians who have recited that creed in different languages, in different places around the world, but it unites us as we speak about that. Here's Gregory writing soon after uh, the, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, as you mentioned, came together. Listen to what he says. This is beautiful. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as a whole, and my eyes are filled, and the greater part of what I am thinking of escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. Glory be to God. What beautiful words. This is our God. And here is the doctrine of the Trinity in this verse. One in three, three in one. And it's expressed in the clearest language possible by an inspired author of a New Testament book. When I write this, when I think about this, when I preach this, I'm reminded about the words that conclude the section of the 1689 Confession, chapter 2 of God and of the Holy Trinity, paragraph 3. It ends like this. This doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. Do you want to know communion with God? Do you want to delight in his beauty and his splendor? To enter into a sense of his eternal majesty and holiness? Then you must do so, as Gregory did, by contemplating the Trinity. One God, who's three persons, eternally and forever. Paul understood this. And he expressed himself in this way to this troubled Corinthian church. He's saying, the Holy Trinity, blessed forever in majesty and glory, works as one to bring us to eternal life. What's better than that? Now, we must be careful here, for it might be easy to misunderstand what the apostle says. He does not teach us that these three things, grace, love, and fellowship, are works of the persons of the Trinity acting as individuals. Because to think that way would contradict other places of Scripture, which speak, for example, of the grace of God, God the Father, or the love of Christ. You see, we must assert that the acts of God are always one. They are united. Paul's point is this. From one perspective, it is only by the grace of Christ that the Corinthians may know the love of God and the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And this may be why the order of the persons differs from the traditional form. When, when we speak about the Trinity, we, we speak of Father, Son, and Spirit, don't we? And yet here, Paul speaks of spirit, uh, Son, Father, and Spirit. It may be um, that he's um, recognizing that the grace of Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and is the only way by which we may come to the Father, that's behind his thinking as he expresses himself in this uh, benediction. He's seeking to help the Corinthians out of their trouble. 
And so we look at this as a whole, and we say it's Trinitarian, and it turns us to worship and adore the great God of heaven and earth. But now let's think about it in each of its portions. Paul's blessing begins as he speaks of each person of the Trinity and presents them to us. The first element of the benediction is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we notice, pardon me, that we have the full name and title of our Savior, which, if you remember, that's exactly how Paul expresses himself in chapter 1, verse 2, at the beginning of the epistle. It's as if the beginning and the ending are presenting the same message. Charles Hodge helps us to understand why it is that the full name and title of our Savior is presented to us here. When we read the word Lord, that it is intended to speak to us of his divine nature. We must say of him that he is really and truly God. Everything that may be said about deity is properly attributed to this one. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. This one is truly and really God. This is followed by his name, Jesus, a name which describes his human nature. The name announced to Joseph by the angel of the Lord, the name to be given to the baby who was born of the Virgin Mary, it, is of his, it speaks of his true humanity. As the Chalcedonian definition says, he has a rational soul and body coessential with us according to his manhood. When we see the name Jesus, we have to think in this way, everything that may be said about humanity, about man as man, came, come forth from the hand of God, may be said of him. He is really and truly a man. Lord, really and truly God. Jesus, really and truly man. Christ, the third term, which speaks of his office, the long-promised anointed one, the prophet, priest, and king, the only mediator between God and man. Listen to this excerpt from what is popularly known as the Athanasian Creed. We, we've had the, the, uh, the Nicene Creed, a reference to the Chalcedonian definition, now the Athanasian Creed. I don't have the Apostles' Creed in here. Maybe I should add that in as well. The four great creeds of the early church. Listen to these words from the Athanasian Creed. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance of his mother, born in the world. Perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. Oh, those words beautifully express Paul's doctrine. You see, not only do we have in this benediction that is so familiar to us a profound Trinitarian doctrine, but we also have a blessing that is based on high Christology. The idea is that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the fullness of his identity, God and man united in one person forever, who is the Christ, who is the Savior, in the fullness of his identity, he brings grace to us. 
Brothers and sisters, he loves his church and he lavishes grace upon her. Grace, favor, unmerited love flowing from the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, to his needy people. Grace is not a physical commodity, but grace is an essential spiritual virtue. Grace is the fruit of the mediatorial acts of our Lord freely granted to us. I want you to imagine with me just a moment. Think about Paul. We don't know what he looked like. There's a man on his knees before God asking for copious measures of grace to come upon the Corinthians from the God-man, from the eternal one who humbled himself and became man, who assumed our humanity so that we might be redeemed. And then pronouncing this to his sinning, selfish friends. There is a sense, you see, in which this benediction is a prayer. It really and truly is a pronouncement of blessing But from Paul's perspective, it's an invocation of blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The love of God. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's Paul's desire. It's very simple, but it's amazing when you contemplate it. Because grace is to the life of the believer what water is to the soil. Without it, there is no growth. Only barrenness and emptiness. You know, one of the things that that has struck me driving around in the last couple of days is how green and lush this place is. I lived in Southern California for 20 years. It's a semi-arid climate. We had two seasons, green and brown. And most of the year it was brown. Without irrigation in Southern California, all that you have are weeds and brambles. But for the Corinthians, with all their troubles... Paul seeks the blessing of grace, showers of life-giving grace, because grace is the doorway to the future. It's the blessing that's necessary to bring forth good fruit, and that's what Paul desires for them, to, to put away the sins and to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit of God in their midst. Repentance, forgiving one another, growing in love, and this grace that provides the means by which that fruit might be produced comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second element of the benediction is the love of God. When the New Testament authors use the word God by itself, commonly, most frequently, they refer to the Father. And that's clearly the sense and intention of our apostle at this point. The grace which comes from Christ helps us to know the love of God. As we said just a few moments ago, no one comes to the Father but by our Lord Jesus Christ. This, what Paul describes here is not our love for God. He's not saying that your love may increase, although that's implied. Rather, he's speaking about God's enormous love for us. You see, the Corinthians need to grow desperately in their love for God, but that's not Paul's point here. It's grace alone that allows the Corinthians to know something of the fullness of the depth of the love that our Father in heaven has for his saints. And this is true for us as well. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that our God is not a deity who is far away and hidden from us, but he is a God who is overflowing in love. As John says in chapter 4 of his first letter, God is love. This is the God who has given us Christ 
through whom we come to him. I ask the question, how do we describe the love of God? The love of God is beyond parallel, and it's above comparison. In Ephesians chapter 3, when Paul desires to give some form of description of the nature of the love of God, he uses spatial terms. Listen to his words, writing to the Ephesians, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, we cannot fathom its depths. We cannot reach its heights. It extends in every direction to the horizon and beyond. Speaking about God and of God's love, David says this in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Now, Paul, I'm sorry, David is using beautiful, metaphorical, poetic language to describe the presence of God everywhere, the love of God everywhere. We can understand easily what he means when he says, if I ascend into heaven or if I make my bed in Sheol. But the next verse is really wonderful. If I take the, the wings of the morning, poetic language for the east, where the sun would rise and come up. And then he says, or dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Geographically, the Mediterranean Sea is to the west of Israel. From the east to the west, up and down, wherever I go, the God who is love is there. That's what David is saying to us. And here in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, this simple phrase points to that amazing reality. God is love. And his love brought to us by and demonstrated in Christ's grace is to be known by us. You see, as the Corinthians bathe in the love that God has for them, they will be transformed and they will love like him. This is the foundation upon which they must rebuild their love for each other. They must begin with God's love. And as they contemplate God's love, they will increase their love for one another. The scripture asserts that we are to delight in God's love. Our Lord Jesus prays to the Father for us because the Father loves us in John 16. We're told in Romans 5 that the Holy Spirit sheds the love of the Father into our hearts. This is a marvelous truth and an enormous blessing. What, could be, uh, what better benediction could be offered that, we all, that all would know the love of God? I said that at the end of that brief comments on the grace of the Lord Jesus, didn't I? But it got better. And Paul's not done yet. There's still more. Because thirdly, he speaks about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Here's the third person of the Holy Trinity, the sometimes neglected Holy Spirit, an essential part of this wonderful benediction. So think about this with me. Now, we need to be careful to understand properly the intention of the apostle in this place. Because it's possible to read the statement as if it says, the communion or the fellowship that we have with each other because of the Holy Spirit. But that would miss Paul's point. That's not what he's saying here. In the other two cases, 
Paul's desire is that the Corinthians would know blessings that come from heaven, Christ's grace and God's love. And it would seem best to understand this third element of the benediction with the same idea. The koinonia, the fellowship or communion of the Holy Spirit, depends on what Bible translation you have in front of you. they're, They're synonyms. The koinonia of the Holy Spirit is the blessings brought to us by God's Spirit. It's the fullness of spiritual favors lavished upon us by the Lord. The fruit of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and everything else that the Spirit does in us to make us like Christ and preparing us to live in the heavenly world of love in the presence, pardon me, of the glorious triune God. Just think about some of the, the blessings that the New Testament tells us are brought to us by God's Spirit. He reminds us of the words of our Lord. He works among us to glorify the Savior. He sheds the Father's love into our hearts. He bears witness with us that we are God's children. He seals us, assuring eternal life. He's the down payment of the heavenly world. He anoints us like priests so that we might worship. He's the spirit of adoption. We could go on. That's what Paul is describing here. All of these heavenly blessings that the Holy Spirit brings to us, grants to us freely by his grace and through God's love. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is to know these realities ever more fully. And brothers and sisters, this is a great blessing. And I ask, who is able to quantify it? Who can put it together and, and, and make it equal to anything on earth that we might possess? But we still haven't reached the end. Because there's one more phrase. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And we must not miss this last short phrase. Two comments are appropriate. First is this. Grace, love, and fellowship are not theoretical concepts. They're not merely ideas to contemplate. These are spiritual realities that have a source and that have a destination. They come from God to women and men like you and me, and God's purpose is that they will be known and experienced by us. The reason that there is a benediction, a blessing, is that grace and love and fellowship would reside in your heart and overwhelm your life and cause you to love the brethren and to love the Lord your God. But secondly, consider that Paul includes the entire church in his benediction. These are the people who had rejected him, who troubled him, who followed others. And yet he pronounces these words on all of them. No one in the church was excluded from Paul's desire to know grace and love and fellowship. Paul knew their names. Paul could remember their faces He could hear their voices as he thought about them speaking. Luke tells us in his uh, Acts of the Apostles that Paul had spent at least 18 months among the Corinthians. And I wonder, as he writes, if these memories were in his mind. 
He knew the people who were causing him difficulty. He, he, could, he could recognize them immediately and bring them to mind. And yet he doesn't pray for God's anger to come upon them. Rather, he prays that they might know grace and love and fellowship. See, these blessings are not formalities. But on Paul's part as a godly leader, it's his genuine desire for them. So that no one who names the name of Christ was excluded from these words of life and health and growth. They were intended by Paul for everyone. Even the Corinthians would cause him so much trouble. They're wonderful words, aren't they? They're, they're really encouraging. Grace and love and fellowship are not the result of our good works. They're not the reward that comes to us for good behavior. We don't receive them because we've done well this week. We must remember who these Corinthians were and how badly they had treated the apostle. Grace and love and fellowship go before everything we do, and they serve as the only basis from which our obedience, repentance, and faith may flow. You see, there is no law in this verse. It's all gospel. It's all good news. Now, reading the book, the, the epistle, the second epistle to the Corinthians, may be like overhearing a difficult conversation. But I hope you agree with me that the ending is really wonderful. It's very different from what you and I may experience. In spite of all the problems among the Corinthians, despite their terrible behavior towards him, Paul writes in Trinitarian terms, using the full title of our Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and pronounces this blessing on the whole church. So I ask the question, how do I apply this text? Well, I can't do so in the traditional way. If you are like the Corinthians and you need to repent of something, then do that. But there aren't three methods for you to put grace and love and fellowship into practice. There are no steps to take in order to receive these gifts of divine mercy. Without the Lord's presence and power, we are nothing and we can do nothing. Even our duties must be based in his being and in his acts, in who God is. It's interesting that Paul's theology is at the, the foundation of the Christian life, exactly as the Baptist Confession says. It's the foundation of our communion with God. I want to have communion with God. And our comfortable dependence on him. I want to have comfortable dependence on him in all circumstances of my life, especially when difficulties come. And the foundation for that is knowing him and receiving his gospel. So I ask you, do you believe the gospel? Do you know this God who is full of mercy and compassion and love, who promises to his people grace and love and fellowship, who grants repentance so that you may turn from your besetting sins? It's all about the gospel, and it's all about what God has done first and foremost. Now, there is one application especially that I want to make because this benediction gives us hope. It provides to us hope, hope for everyone, hope for you and hope for me. Whatever your personal struggles may be, I don't know what they could be, a list that sometimes would be accurate for some professing Christians. Maybe there's a besetting sin that cripples your Christian life. 
Maybe there's difficulty loving a difficult person. Maybe your personality has a tendency to be critical of others. Maybe you're self-centered. Maybe you're full of anxiety and fear. Maybe you struggle and have difficulty with assurance of your salvation. There could be many ways that we express this. Whatever issue your issue may be, the triune God, I can assure you this, the triune God is full of grace and love and fellowship. You have hope, as the Corinthians had hope, to overcome their deep struggles and sins. This benediction gives you hope. Because the remedy for whatever your struggle may be, whatever your difficulty is, begins here. Receive his grace. Every time that you face temptation, teach yourself to meditate on the love of God. Remember the presence and power of the Holy Spirit given to you. When you fall prey to temptation, when you do that thing that you hate and wish you didn't do, when your anger expresses itself or you covet the things of others, come here. And remember that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with all of God's believers. It's to be with you. When your assurance of salvation is weak or it's lost, contemplate these truths. Salvation, forgiveness, comes by grace because of God's love and through the promised work of the Holy Spirit. You see, this is what Paul wanted the Corinthians to remember, even at the end of a very difficult epistle. And brothers and sisters, friends, this is Paul's message to you. Apply it to yourself, whatever your struggle might be. And so, I urge you to go from this place blessed by the Lord. And remember that it all starts with him. And as we learn this lesson and look to him for life, we will see our need for repentance and turn away from our sins. Our faith will grow deeper and more profound. We will love him because he first loved us. Look to the Holy Trinity. Look to the Father, Son, and Spirit. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Meditate on the power of the Holy Spirit who brings us heavenly blessings. And so the final word of our book is our final word as well. So be it. Amen. Let's pray. Our Savior and Redeemer, our great King, we give you thanks that you are a God of love and mercy and grace, that you shower your blessings upon your people, that when we struggle with the realities of living in this world, in this present evil age, when we allow our indwelling sin to overwhelm us, when we give in, or when those temptations seem so strong, we know that you give grace. You provide us with hope. You remind us that these things can be put aside. So we ask that you might do it in our lives. Write these words on our hearts and help us to grow in our love for you and our love for one another and glorify yourself in all that is done We ask in Jesus' name.